0: Ruth chapter 2. Now you're off the hook for having your answers recorded this week because I've just got the recording device here and it's going to be hearing my voice and that's fine. It might hear your voice, it might not, so you're kind of off the hook as far as that's concerned. But that doesn't mean you're off the hook for answering questions because I've still got questions to ask you. Last week we covered the entire chapter of Ruth 1. We may not get to do that entirely, uh, again, this evening with Ruth chapter 2. However, let's talk about Ruth 1 just a little bit. What did we say? Can anyone summarize the setting within which Ruth is found? The historical setting and the biblical setting within which Ruth is found. Okay, so you had mentioned that it's at the time of the judges. Um, We see that from chapter 1, verse 1. And you would mention specifically that it was a time where, in sin, where God was not uh, providing for His people as such. Why? Why do you say that? What in the text gives us the understanding that they were most likely in sin? Good. Yeah. Very good. So we have a covenant called the Mosaic Covenant. It was it's it was established on Mount Sinai. The the very pinnacle of the Mosaic Covenant was the Ten Commandments. But there was much more to it. And the thrust of the covenant, as Brady was saying, is that God would bless Israel as they obeyed Him and curse Israel as they disobeyed Him. And so as we see in the time of the judges, this cycle of apostasy whereby as Israel, uh, they're serving the Lord, then they fall to idolatry, then God gives them into the hands of their enemies, And they're in captivity until such time as they repent and cry unto the Lord. And then God raises up a judge to deliver them from their enemies. And then they serve the Lord as long as this judge is alive until such time as they again fall into idolatry. And as we think of this cycle, we recognize from the blessings and the cursings and God promising His people that if they followed Him and if they obeyed Him, then He would not bring... The curses of the land, or the curses of Egypt, or any of those curses upon them, so they would always have plenty. They would not have the plagues and the illnesses. They would uh, they would multiply. Their children would live. They would not have the deaths in childbirth, as were typical of time. All of these elements, God says, I will bless you physically. I will bless you monetarily if you will but obey me. If you will but um. Come in line with my covenant. But we know some things, and, and we haven't necessarily taught this uh, thoroughly. Maybe, maybe one of these days we'll do it. As a matter of fact, maybe next week we'll take a little excursus and we'll do it. We haven't really talked about, uh, we'll, we'll be doing it in Sunday school in, in about three months, so I'll wait for that. Um, covenants. There are two types of covenants in the Old Testament. There are one-way covenants and there are two-way covenants. A one-way covenant is the kind of covenant that God gave to Abraham, whereby God promised some things to Abraham, and Abraham had no obligation to God. We see this as uh, in in, uh, Genesis chapter 15, God puts Abraham to sleep. God tells Abraham cut up the calves, cut up the animals, put them on either side of a valley, let the blood flow into the valley. And generally speaking, what the men would do as they entered into a covenant is they would cut these animals in half, all the blood would flow down to a central point, and then each man in the covenant would walk through that blood. And as each man in the covenant walked through that blood, each one was vowing to the other that they were going to hold up their end of the bargain. And if they didn't hold up their end of the bargain, then that man says... the the consequences are on my head if I don't hold up my end of the bargain. But see, God didn't do that with Abraham. God told Abraham to cut the the calves to to make the the pit, the blood runs down into the pit in Genesis 15. And then the Scriptures tell us that God put Abraham into a deep sleep. And as Abraham was in this deep sleep, the glory of God, God walked through Hmm. that blood. Telling Abraham that the covenant he's making with him is not a two-way covenant. That God will be faithful to Abraham regardless. That this is a one-way covenant. That this is a promise of God to Abraham without any qualifications on Abraham's part. That's the same thing as the new covenant. We see it in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 33. What we call salvation. Salvation is a one-way covenant. Whereby God has promised something to man. And if man will accept that covenant... Now, I know that that word has some, some unpleasant associations in today's culture. A lot of churches speak of, of the covenant relationship with God, and, and it's a watered-down theology, but truly we are in what, what the scriptures call the new covenant. And this is a one-way covenant. It is God to man. We, we are obligated to nothing. It is a gift of God to man. However, the Mosaic covenant was different. Now we know that the Mosaic Covenant passed away with Jesus Christ. It was replaced by the New Covenant. But the Mosaic Covenant was different than something like the New Covenant or something like the Abrahamic Covenant or even like the Davidic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was two-way. This was one where God had His end of the bargain and Israel had their end of the bargain. And God says, I'll hold up my end and You've got to hold up your end. And there was no conditions upon if God didn't hold up His end because God is perfect and faithful. They didn't need to set conditions. You don't need to set conditions for God to hold up His end. But God did set conditions on Israel and said, you better hold up your end. If you do, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll curse you. And so what we see as we enter the book of Ruth, as Brady so accurately described, is that they are, they have, there's a famine in the land. So they are receiving cursings. And if they are receiving cursings, the implications is that they are in one of these downward times where they are they are in a a time of idolatry they are in one of the low times where they have been delivered into the hands of their enemies so that's the setting time of the judges most likely israel is is doing wrong at the time they are. Uh, in idolatry as there's a famine in the land. And does anyone remember the city that uh, we begin in? Courtney. Bethlehem. Bethlehem, and specifically Bethlehem of Judah. Bethlehem, Judah. And we know of some things that will happen in Bethlehem. We know of some things that did happen in Bethlehem. We talked about them last week. And where does this man, we're introduced to a man named Elimelech, He's an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and his wife Naomi and his children, Malon and Kilian. And because there's a famine in the land, they leave. They leave Bethlehem, Judah, and where did they go? Courtney. They go to sojourn in Moab. While they're in Moab, Elimelech dies. And Naomi's sons, Malon and Chilion they take to themselves wives. One named Ruth, the other named Orpah. So Naomi is in the land now of Moab with her two sons and her two daughters-in-law. And then the scriptures tell us that her two sons died, Malon and Chilion. And now she's left with her two daughters-in-law, and she decides to go back to Bethlehem. And does anyone remember a problem since they had been, since they left Bethlehem and went to Moab? Someone other than Courtney knows. <laughs> Okay, Courtney, go for it. Ten years. Ten years. The text tells us that they had been in the land of Moab ten years. Uh, That is verse four. And they dwelt there about ten years. We don't know if they dwelt there ten years before Malon and Kilian had died or if this was the entire breadth of the time that they were in Moab. But they were there at least ten years. And she decides to go back to Bethlehem Judah. Can somebody remind us why it is she decided to go back. What did she heard that wanted her to, made her want to go back? Peyton? She heard that, that the Lord had blessed his people with bread. And we learn a couple of things from this. First thing we learn is that um, we're, we're ascribing, Naomi is ascribing this to God. You can see that this is a family that still is loyal to the true God of Israel. They haven't fallen into idolatry, even if the rest of Israel has. But the second thing we learned from this is the one that we we focused on last week. What's the implication, or the possible implication of the fact that the Lord had blessed His people with bread? Courtney? That most likely within these ten years, a judge had arisen in Israel had judged Israel, had delivered Israel from their enemies, and that they were now right with, right with God and were walking with the Lord to some degree, and so the famine had subsided from Israel. Naomi tries to convince her daughters-in-law to go back. She speaks of the leveret marriage, the fact that she would not be able to produce heirs for them, Orpah finally is convinced, and she goes back to her family in Moab, but says Ruth clave to her. And then after Ruth clave to her, we see in verses 16 and 17 that she vows a vow to Naomi that says, where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I'll die. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. And can somebody remind me the implication of this vow that Ruth made to Naomi? What did we talk about when we talked about this vow? I think Courtney was taking notes last week. <laughs> Courtney, go ahead. <laughs> um, because she was a little, she fell to that vow until she died. Right. There was no male who... It, t- typically speaking, if, if, a, if a woman had a husband or if a unmarried woman had a father who was living, she, if she made a vow, as soon as the father or the husband heard about the vow, he would have the privilege of invalidating that vow if he thought it was not a vow she should be in. Women are in subjection to the men. We see that all throughout Scripture. It's still that way today, that a woman is in subjection to her father, to her husband, and so God gave the uh, the ability for the husband of the father to invalidate the vow of a wife, or to of a daughter, unmarried daughter. However, the scriptures clearly stated that if a widow makes a vow, that that vow that there was no one that could nullify that vow, that she was held to that vow, and so. She makes a vow before Jehovah God here that she cannot go back on without suffering the consequences of going back on a vow to Jehovah God. So they go together. They go to Bethlehem. And the people that see her say, ah, it's Naomi. She's back. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. A word which we, which we recall means bitter. She said, because the Almighty hath afflicted me hath dealt very bitterly with me, verse 20. And it says, So Naomi returned, verse 22, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. We're introduced to a man here named Boaz. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter one, verse five. We know that Boaz is a kinsman of Elimelech. In other words, they were family. So this is a lim—it's uh, possibly uh, Elimelech's nephew. We're not sure. But in Matthew chapter 1, we have the genealogy of Christ. And I'm, I'm spoiling the ending here. Ruth is in the genealogy of Christ. However, I don't yet want to focus on that. What I'd like us to focus on is Boaz's parents. Look at verse 5. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rachab. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Who's Rahab? Can anyone tell me who who is this Rahab? There's not a lot of women mentioned in the genealogies, so who is this woman Rahab? Jared. Boaz's mother. Yes. But who is she? You've got, yeah, You're right. But I mean, who is she in Scripture? Do Do we know? Is she just some anonymous Rah I, I'm saying it in the Hebrew way, the Rahab, and it sounds a bit more. Rahab. Rahab of, of Jericho. Can somebody remind me who is Rahab of Jericho? Courtney, go ahead. Rahab, remember the Rahab that was a harlot, the Rahab who lived in Jericho. The Rahab who, when the spies came, hid those spies and then helped them get away. The Rahab that put the tassel on her window or out her window, and when the walls fell, her part of the wall did not, and she was spared, and Israel didn't destroy her or anyone that was in her house. And so Rahab and her family were spared, and they came into the nation of Israel and they proselyted and they were made a part of the nation of Israel because of her faith. And she married a man named Salmon. And they had a son. And their son's name was Boaz. And they were of the tribe of Judah. And when they got into the land, so we we see here that this is only one generation after the conquering of Jericho. So this would not be the same generation as... The last few chapters of Judges where we have um, the Levite and the Civil War. It probably would have been after that, but the next generation after that. And here we have Boaz, the son of Solomon and the harlot Rahab. He's half Canaanite in a manner of speaking. He's the son of a harlot. But you don't see any of that in Scripture. Why? Because this woman had exercised faith. This woman had accepted Jehovah God. And so she's no longer defined by the sins of her past. Just as anyone who accepts Christ, anyone who accepts the God of the Bible, is not defined by the sins of their past. Is not shackled by those things wherewith we were once ashamed. But we're new. And look at the new life that Rahab received. Not only is she brought into the nation of Israel, not only is she, sh- she, she saved from death, but now she's taken in by a man of, of the tribe of Judah. And they have a son. And as the Scriptures describe this son, he is a mighty man of wealth. He is a man of influence in Israel. He is a man of wealth in Israel. And as we continue to see the genealogy, Rahab becomes the great-grandmother of King David. Rahab is in the line of Jesus Christ. Wow. A story of redemption. We're in a story of redemption and that that, that redemption is about Ruth. But we see something in here well before Ruth's redemption that's really special. We see the end of the story for a woman named Rahab. Rahab we get to see peer just a little bit deeper into the story beyond what happened that day in Jericho and the next few days in Ai. And as they establish the land and as Joshua dies and he commits the land to the nation of Israel to continue to, to, to foster. And as we read through the Judges and the cycle of apostasy, but we see this woman and her son, as we'll see, is a man of great faith and love for the Lord. All of Israel was apostatizing, but here we have this family of Elimelech and this family of Solomon who weren't. So we have this man named Boaz. And as I mentioned, he's described as a mighty man of wealth. We see this this Hebrew term, mighty man of wealth, oftentimes In the the scriptures, we often see it translated mighty man of valor. The Hebrew term is gibor hayil. And it's the exact same term. It's the term used to describe Gideon. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, behold thou mighty man of valor. That's this phrase. It said of Jephthah. Jephthah was described as a mighty man of valor. That's this phrase. It's used of Boaz. It's used of Kish, uh, Saul's father in Benjamin. It's used to describe David. It's used to describe Jeroboam. Naaman, the Syrian general. Zadok, the priest at the time of David. A man named Eliada, one of the mighty men of valor uh, beyond the time of David. And then it's used of various armies to describe Uh, groups of men who were mighty men of valor. But see, here, it's not just speaking of a man of great strength for war, although I'm sure if he helped the nation of Israel subdue the land, he was probably one of those as well. But it's speaking of a man of great influence and wealth. See, they'd found their rest and he had found success in the land of Israel. And so Ruth, the Moabite, is said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. According to the Old Testament law, gleaning was a right in the land. Turn with me to Leviticus 19. In Leviticus chapter 19, look with me at verse 9. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. And so God specifically commands that when there's a harvest in the land, be it the barley harvest or the wheat harvest or even the gathering of the the grapes from the vineyard, it's explicitly commanded that they would not glean the corners of the fields, that they would not glean the grapes that fell from the basket. God said, don't do it because I want to be able to provide for the poor. Those who were poor in the land, those who couldn't provide for themselves, those who didn't have enough, God doesn't say set up a system whereby they can get it all for nothing. But God does say if those poor are willing to get out there in the field and pick it for themselves, give them the option to do so. We're not going to give them handouts here, but we're going to make it available for them. We're going to give them a means by which if they are willing to do the work and we're going to see here in Ruth chapter 2 it was some work. And if they're willing to get out there in the hot sun and they're willing to bend their backs and pick up these grapes and pick up these, these small gleanings then they can have them. And this is a means by which God has ordained the poor to be taken care of even outside of all of the, the general giving and and the blessings in the land and the blessings that God had had commanded the people. And notice at the end of Leviticus uh, 19, verse 10, he says, I am the Lord your God. When God does that in the law, He is asserting His authority as if it were a kingly decree. And at the bottom of that kingly decree, they put a stamp of the king's signet which anyone who would look at that kingly decree would know, all of what has just been said was by authority of the king himself. And that's what God was doing here. He's saying, let me remind you, I am the Lord your God. See, it's not going to be what you want to do, farmers. You're going to get to harvest time, and you're going to see those fields of golden grain And you're going to say, this is my livelihood and my sustenance. And you are going to put your your servants out in that field. And they're going to glean. And you're not going to want to leave the corners. And you're going to see some of those gleanings lying on the ground. And you're going to want to send out your servant to pick that stuff up. Because you might be able to get another ephah or so out of it. You can sell that. You can keep that. You can thresh that. You can do something with that. But don't do it. I am the Lord your God. And I have just told you, purposefully leave some behind so the poor can live. And so, that's what Esther, Esther <laughs> that's what Ruth is talking about here. Esther won't be for a little while yet. That's what Ruth is speaking of here. Ruth is speaking of the possibility of going out to the field. But notice she says, And glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. Why should it be, we see this word favor, it's used three times in this chapter, the only three times in the book of Ruth, this word grace or favor. Why would it be that she'd have to find favor? Well, it seems as though, if we understand what's happening in Israel at the time, There's not too many farmers who have taken God seriously. They've run after their idols. They've run after their false gods. And they're not interested in leaving the corners of their lands. And so she says, let me go out to the fields. Maybe, just maybe, I'll find someone that will show me favor and will let me glean. Maybe, just maybe, I'll find someone who will be kind enough to me to let me pick up some of those handfuls that are dropped by the servants. Another indication that the time at the time, Israel was not in the best of places. She should have been able to go into any field. And glean. It shouldn't have been, an attempt to find favor. It should have just been understood. Naomi says, gives her blessing. She says, "Go, my daughter." Verse three. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the kindred of Elimelech. What does that mean? Her hap was to light on a part of the field. What's the King James Bible saying there? Evan. That's where she happened to find herself. Very good. That's where she happened to find herself. There's a little bit deeper. Exactly. The the word happened. That's what we're going for. There's a little bit of a deeper implication to that, though. What's the deeper implication? Courtney. That she didn't know it was Boaz's field. That Naomi and, and... uh, Ruth did not understand the implications of what was happening. But the word also... It's, it's the word um, in the Hebrew that means an unforeseen event, chance, or fortune. The author of Hebrew is doing... Uh, of, of, in the Hebrew, excuse me, the author of Ruth in the, in the Hebrew is doing something a little bit... He's, he's, he's playing with his words a bit here. They happen to go into the field of Boaz. They happen to find a field that would actually allow her to glean. It happened to be the the field of their kinsmen. They're saying it's by chance, but they're not saying it's by chance. There are no coincidences in the Christian life, are there? We might say, by fortune, I'm, I might say to you, I was recounting to someone the testimony of me coming up here, and past, and becoming the pastor here the other day. I might tell someone that in January, before I graduated from seminary, I just got a whim one day to get online and search for churches. And I happened to type a certain phrase into Google, which happened to bring a listing of sites, which happened to bring a site that only had maybe 15 churches on it, Needing positions to be filled in their churches. And as I went down that list, it just so happened that every church I had gone to only had their doctrinal statement, these terse little, yeah, we believe in God in the Bible statements that really bother me. And so I didn't give them a second thought until I happened upon a site called LegacyBaptistChurch.net which happened to have been put together by someone extremely thorough who happened to take the time to thoroughly delineate on the website what they believed, and I happened to agree with what was on that website, and I happened to contact that person who it just so happened had the next week been candidating for uh, someone for the position. Sure, all these things happened. It's chance. And by good fortune, that person happened to not be the one that they called. And so we happened to get into a conversation and it just so happened that it worked out. And we can say that. But as I say that, you know that what I'm, not, I'm, I'm not telling you that it just so happened. I'm telling you what we all see very clearly, that God was at work. And that's what the author of Ruth is saying here. She happed to light onto a field that let her glean, that was the field of a man named Boaz who happened to be her kinsman, who happened to be her near kinsman in the city of Bethlehem. There's no chance involved here. This is God working. This is God at work. We see it. Verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto a servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? The servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. So Boaz comes out from Bethlehem. He probably had a house in Bethlehem and here were his fields on the outskirts of Bethlehem. And as he comes out to his fields on the outskirts of Bethlehem, he looks at his, the, the man who was in charge of all the reapers and he says, who's this woman? And they say that's the Moabitish woman. They're speaking as if they're very familiar with the situation. We'll see in verse 11 that he is very familiar with her situation. They all have heard about what's going on. He knows who Naomi is. It's, it's their kinsman. He knows who she is. They know who she's brought back. Everyone knows who she's brought back. There's a Moabitish woman that's come back with her. I mean, this is like small town gossip stuff. It's going to get around. Everyone's going to know who this woman is and what she's about. And notice how the servant describes her in verse 7. She said, I pray you let me glean after the reapers. And then it says at the end of the verse, and hath continued even from the morning until now. That she tarried a little in the house. Says Boaz, it's the Moabitish woman. She came up to me and she asked if she could reap in our fields. And I know you've told me that they're allowed to do that according to the law. You're a man that loves the Lord. We see it even in his greeting to his reapers. He says, the Lord be with you. The typical greeting of a man who truly served Jehovah. And they replied back as men who love their master. The Lord bless thee, master. We serve you. We're indentured servants to you, but you've been good to us. You say, the Lord be with you. We say, the Lord bless you, Master. He's a good man. He's a good master. He loves the Lord. He takes care of His people. And His, his leader, the leader of His servants, says, there's this woman, and you, you've, you've told us they can do this, so we've let her glean. And I tell you what, she's been out here all day. She has been working hard. She has been finding every little piece that's been dropped. And perhaps he had very good servants. Perhaps they didn't drop much. Perhaps they did. We don't know. But she's been working hard to glean what she can to provide for herself and for her mother-in-law. It says she's tarried little in the house. Verse 8, Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go into the vessels, and drink of that which the younger men have drawn. Boaz knows that he's near kinsman to Naomi. He understands what's going on here. He sees this young lady and not only would he have the natural compassion of a good godly man for a young lady in need, but she has been working hard. And so he goes up to her and he says, Ruth, tell you what, don't even go into another field. Don't search anywhere else. Don't, don't even try. Stay here. You can follow right behind my maidens. Generally, the men would do the reaping, the women would do the threshing. They would bundle it together and take it to the threshing floor and thresh it. Stand right behind my maidens. Don't even, don't even just pick up the gleanings from the men as they reap. Stand behind the women that would bundle it together and take it. That's where most is going to fall out. It's already been gleaned and, and, all, and they have to bundle it. Stand behind them. Take it from them. Stand right behind them. And he says, also, I have commanded my men not to touch you. Not only are you going to be provided for in this field, but you're going to be protected in this field. For a young lady who has no husband and is a stranger in the land, such protections would have been rare. And here Boaz says, I'm going to care for you. You'll get your gleanings and I'm going to protect you. None of these men will touch you. You can glean without having to look over your shoulder. You can glean without having to be worried. You just do what you need to do. You take care of your mother-in-law and yourself. He goes one step further in verse 9. He says, And when thou art athirst, go into the vessels, and drink of that which the young men have drawn. I've got these vessels setting out so that my men, as they... Work throughout the day and women in the hot sun, they can drink. Feel free. They've drawn it. You can drink from it. When you get thirsty, take from it. Notice how she responds in verse 10. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldst take knowledge of me? seeing I am a stranger. We see this word grace for the second time. This word that means being agreeable or favorable or gaining favor in the eyes of another. It's the same word by which... we Remember when Noah was living and God decided He would destroy all flesh and the Scriptures say, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord? It's the same word. Just as Noah found favor in the eyes of God, So too here, Ruth says, Why have I found favor in your eyes? There is no reason why you should do this for me. There is no reason why I ought to receive this from you. Why have I found grace in thy sight? And she humbles herself before him. She says, I'm not even of Israel. I'm a stranger in the land. I am a Moabitess woman. Notice Boaz's answer, verse 11. Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knowest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Boaz already knew of this woman, and basically... This is what is happening in Boaz. Boaz hears about this Moabitish woman who has left her father and her, and her mother and has clung to her mother-in-law because she has married into this family and she has found this God who is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and she doesn't want to be separated from Him and she doesn't want to be separated from her mother-in-law and she sees an obligation to care for this woman who has no one else to care for her. And she... And, All of these things, Boaz has heard it, and Boaz is impressed. As a man who loves God, he's impressed by a stranger who would love God as well. And let me ask you this, as we think about Boaz in particular, why might it be that Boaz would have a particular soft spot for this stranger who has found a love for Jehovah God? Jared, she's a, she's a relative, relation. We're in the right, on the right path. What else? His mother was non-Israelite, who kind of went through the same situation. Sure. His mother was a stranger who accepted the Lord and found favor in the eyes of Israel and was brought in like any other woman in the nation of Israel, and was loved and was cared for. And as he thought back to his mother Rahab the harlot, there is no doubt he found great esteem in his heart for this young lady Ruth. And then as he has this esteem already in his heart, he sees a young lady who is working hard out in the sun in his fields. And as he sees this woman who's working hard and he speaks kind words to her, she falls down upon her face and says, I don't deserve this. Can you see what's happening here? Can you see how Boaz is understanding the character of this young lady? Do you see how godly this young lady is? the character of this young lady. And Boaz tells her, we've read it, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. He says, Ruth, you have forsaken all to follow the Lord your God to provide for your mother-in-law who had been willing to release you from that obligation. You're now working hard in the fields. You fall on your face before me when I offer you the the most simple of courtesies. He says, God will bless you. And may God recompense you fully for the kind of woman that you are. We're going to stop there. We're going to pick up there next week. We'll review a little bit before we keep going. You can already see why it's such a tremendous narrative. What's happening here is something very special. And we'll look forward to picking up there next week and continuing to understand um, what God is doing. We'll understand the dynamics of Boaz and Ruth. We'll understand perhaps some elements of necessity in regard to character as godly men and women and what we ought to be and what we ought to be seeking and how we ought to be living. And we'll continue to apply these things to our hearts in a way that is, as we were prayed prayed we would do tonight, in a way that is both um, very pointed as well as accurate.